Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Do our lifestyle choices really make a difference at the end of time? Uh, that's a question that we're going to explore tonight. And what does our lifestyle have to do with our spirituality or our spiritual outcome, especially as we're knowing that we're living in the end of time? We see that there's a question that we cannot help but wonder. Is God... A celestial dictator who points his finger at you and says, your time is up? Or is health a matter of chance or choice? That's what we're going to explore tonight. You know, we talked about choice, that we have the freedom of choice, that God gives us that ability to choose. And so God respects our freedom of choice, does he not? Although it may not be good for us, he's not going to twist our arm to make us make the right choice. We are responsible for the choices that we make. And in nature, and in the law of nature, there's always, there's always a cause and effect relationship. For every choice that we make, it actually elicits a result, right? So our choices, can either add years to our life or they can subtract years from our life based on the choices that we make day by day. And I'm convinced that the devil is anxious to destroy our health while God wants to build up our health. And so that's why more than ever our theme for tonight is so relevant. And we want to review this theme. If it's in the Bible, I what? Believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. And the book of Revelation presents two opponents of this titanic struggle between good and evil. Satan the destroyer and Jesus the Restorer. Satan is out to take away our freedom by leading us into bondage, by enslaving us in destructive physical habits such as smoking and drinking alcohol, to name a few. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, if you could feel free to turn there with me, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, talks about what the dragon intends to do. The dragon is who? By now you should know who the dragon is. The Satan, right? The devil. And we see that what is the intent on doing? Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and we see here it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who, what? Deceives the whole world. One of Satan's ways of controlling human beings is to deceive them into thinking 
that certain lifestyle practices give them freedom. When in actuality, they lead them into bondage. He deceives millions into thinking the body doesn't matter as long as the heart is right with God. But is it true? You know, friends, the way that we care for our bodies on earth reveals how we will care for them all throughout eternity. That's a simple principle. Question number one, does God care about our health or just our spirituality? Does God care about how our physical well-being is? And let's take a look at 3 John chapter, I'm 3 John, there's only one chapter. (laughs) 3 John verse 2. It's right before Revelation, right before Jude. 3 John, page 1172. 1172, 3 John, verse 2. Does God care about our health or just about our spirituality? And we're going to look at page 1172 for the answer. And table number 3 will read that for us. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Okay, so we see very clearly, some people say, it doesn't matter what you drink or what you eat or if you smoke or if you do drugs. All that matters is my spiritual well-being. Is that what this verse says? What does the Apostle John say that God cares about? Does he just care about their spiritual prosperity? No. He also cares for their health, their physical prosperity. So God wants us to prosper and be abundant in our health just as we are in our spiritual life. So God cares just as much of our physical health as he does for our spiritual health. And we see that this is very much the case when you look at the the ministry of Jesus. When he was here on this earth, the, the major thing that Jesus was doing predominantly during his ministry was not preaching, it was not teaching, but what Jesus was spending most of the majority of his ministry was healing, wasn't he? Healing, to make man whole. And to make man whole means not just the physical, but also the spiritual, as we're going to see as we go further tonight. The Bible teaches that we are whole persons. God wants to save us completely. That means physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And that makes sense because God, if He is God, should be able to supply all our needs, shouldn't He? And so doesn't it make sense that He would encompass all these things that would bring man to holistic well-being and holistic uh, health? And so question number two, how does our health relate to the book of Revelation? Okay, some people may think, well, hey, pastor, I thought this was a study on Revelation. Why are we talking about health? (laughs) Well, what's the connection? Well, you know what? God's last day message in the book of Revelation does allude very clearly to health. And you're going to see why this is going to be such an important issue for us to understand. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Revelation 14, verse 7. 
I apologize, I don't have the page numbers tonight, but 1183, thank you. Revelation 14, 7, 1183. What is the connection with the book of Revelation and with our health? And you're going to see this connection in this text. Revelation 14, verse 7. And I believe that we just read, table 3 just read. So table 4, nobody's there. Table 5, if someone can read. Revelation 14, verse 7. Okay, so notice in this text that we have revisited so often during our seminar, we see that this is the first angel's message, and the first angel's message is saying, Fear God and give glory to Him, because what? The hour of His judgment has come. So in the judgment hour, in the last days of earth's history, God is calling us to do what? To worship Him, but what else? What else? To give glory to Him. To give glory to God. Now that sounds wonderful, but what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean to give glory to God? Does it mean I just raise my hands up as the music's playing and I give praise and glory through my worship? Oh, Partially, but how do I give glory to God based on what the Bible says? Okay, let's take a look at the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. We're wondering how can we glorify God as the first angel's message of Revelation tells us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 is where we're going to show us exactly how do we give glory to God? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. I believe it's page 1102. 1102, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. What does it mean to glorify God? And we're going to have table number 6 read for us. Okay, so the Bible calls us to glorify God in what? In our physical bodies. Why? Okay, you guys are looking at me, but you should be looking at your Bibles. <laughs> okay, the Bible calls us to glorify God in our physical bodies. Why? Because we were bought with a price. That's right. We were bought with a price. And what is that price? The precious blood of Jesus on Calvary. And so that is why, all the more reason, this topic is so important tonight. Because we want to know what the Bible prescribes to glorify God in our bodies. And we see this shows us very practically how we can glorify God. So I want you to pay attention here because tonight's message is going to be very practical. 
And it's going to be uh, maybe even a touchy subject, but that's something that we need to pray prayerfully ask the Lord. Lord, if there's anything in my life that is not in line with what you prescribed to make my body in the utmost condition for you, help me to give it up so that you can give me something better. And so let's take a look at the next text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 31, how do we glorify God? Okay, we know why we should glorify God, because our bodies are bought with a price. We have to glorify God in our physical bodies. But how do we do it? The word how is the question how is the emphasis here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, page 1106. Page 1106, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. How do we practically glorify God? And table number seven will read this for us. Okay. Now, did you hear that text very clearly? It says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or do, do all to the glory of God. Right? So we see that we glorify God or dishonor Him in the way that we treat our bodies. If we live in harmony with the health laws that He has given, we are truly, indeed, glorifying God in our bodies. God is calling for a people who are completely committed to Him. He is calling for a people who are dedicated mentally, physically, and spiritually to Him. Now, if you remember the story of Daniel, in Daniel, it's very interesting that Daniel, during his captivity in Babylon, it, the stories of Daniel, by the way, are parallel to what God's people will go through in the last days. Did you know that? All the tests that Daniel and his three friends endured in Babylon is, is the same, similar test that God's people will go through in the last days. And it's very interesting that in Daniel chapter 1, in the very beginning, we see when Daniel came to Babylon, already the first test was set before him. The issue of appetite. The issue of food. We saw that Daniel and his friends were taken into the king's table, and they, there was a king's meat. And it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat or wine which he drank. And because of it, Daniel and his friends were ten times wiser than all the wise men in Babylon. And friends, that tells us something very clearly, that if we choose to honor God with our bodies, God's going to honor us. And he certainly did honor Daniel and his three friends because they decided, they purposed in their hearts, they're not going to put anything in their bodies that would defile the body that God has purchased. And so because of that, God blessed them with ten times more wisdom than any man in the kingdom of Babylon. So this is indeed a practical topic for us to also learn how we can best glorify God in our bodies. You see, friends, there are some lifestyle practices that destroy our bodies. The scientific evidence indicates that smoking is one of the world's most deadly killers. 
Dr. Linus Pauling, one of the few scientists ever to win two Nobel Peace Prizes, said, every cigarette you smoke takes 14.5 minutes off your life. In other words, smoking is committing suicide slowly, gradually, in degrees. And if I enjoy a life of too much smoking, like 30 cigarettes a day, and take off 450 plus minutes of my life, no thank you, I don't want that. And we see that in the UK, some researchers have concluded that smoking is the single biggest cause of cancer in the world. In the UK, smoking kills five times more people than road accidents, overdoses, murder, suicide, and HIV all put together. That's amazing. The number one killer in the UK is smoking. Studies from Europe, Japan, and North America have shown that nine in 10 lung cancer uh, patients are caused by many chemicals in tobacco smoke. And so, smokers have a 25% higher risk of a heart attack than non-smokers. We see that nicotine causes the arteries to shrink. The blood flow is restricted by the narrower openings. And when the arteries get smaller and smaller, clots get caught in the blood vessel and then a stroke or a heart attack happens. And we see secondhand smoke also has become a real problem. If you've if you have children in the home, it affects them. They have more colds. Recent studies have shown that children of smokers have a higher cancer risk due to secondhand smoke. Do we really want to pollute the atmosphere around us when our children are around with tobacco smoke? Question number three, how is it possible to gain victory over our addictions? You know, friends, the power of God can help us. The power of God can enable us to quit and gain the victory. By the grace of God, we can be free, and you can present your body, as Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, as a living sacrifice to God. God wants a living sacrifice, not a dying sacrifice. He wants a living, vibrant life that can serve Him and His cause. And by the way, if you are truly called of God and you have uh, uh, like the optimal health as Daniel and his three friends did, what a specimen of what God can do in a life. What a testament that bears to those who are witnessing that. But if you're like dying and you're like, you can barely stand up and you can't move, uh, people will say, what kind of God do you serve? <laughs> do I really believe in that kind of God when you're suffering that way? It's, it's a mockery to the testament that we can bear for God. And God wants us to be living sacrifices for Him. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. This is a message to the Laodicean church. It is one of the greatest rewards that he ever offers. He says, who, To him that overcomes, I will grant them to sit with me, and they will rule with me on my throne. Why on his throne? Because they have learned to rule their own passions and appetites. And because they could rule their passions and appetites, they justly deserve to rule alongside with Christ. Think about Christ. 
When Christ started his ministry, what did Christ do before he started his ministry? He went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. 40 days of fasting. 40 days of no food. Why? Because he wanted to discipline his body. He wanted to overcome that temptation of appetite which the devil tried to cause him to succumb to. Turn the stones into bread. Remember that? But Jesus, did he overcome that temptation of appetite? He certainly did. And he's also asking us to also overcome as he overcame. And that reward is also waiting for us. Revelation declares those who enter the gates of heaven will not be defiling their bodies. We see that when it comes to smoking or any sort of addiction, whatever it may be, quitters always win. Quitters find a reversal of many of the unpleasant effects of tobacco and dramatically reduce their risk of heart disease and cancer. By the grace of God, you can win, my friends. You can say, I am not a slave to tobacco or any other addiction anymore. I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I want to be a child of the King. And He comes into our lives and He grants us His power over those habits. Isn't that awesome? Do you, can you believe in a God that can do that for you? Amen. I'll, I'll assume you said yes. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. It says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And no matter how strong tobacco is, Jesus Christ is much stronger. No matter how strong nicotine is, Jesus Christ is more stronger. Jesus is stronger than enslaving physical habits. When we present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice, Jesus comes into our lives. Jesus, during His ministry on earth, when He healed wherever He went, He comes into our lives with that same healing power. He makes this personal promise to us tonight. And this promise is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. So let's read this promise together so that we can hold fast to it tonight. Table number 8. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Jesus makes his personal promise to all of us tonight as found in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. And if we could have someone from table 8 read that for us, please. And Amen. Thank you. So in this text, Jesus is speaking about all the spiritual power in the universe that is available to us. God promises you that same spiritual power tonight. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus will deliver us from the slavery of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Do you not know that whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Friends, we need Jesus Christ. Jesus frees us from the slavery of the devil. Jesus delivers us. Jesus makes us new. And he gives us the victory over whatever it may be, whether it's smoking or alcohol or you name it. He will give you the victory. Isn't that good news tonight? 
And whatever the struggle you're facing, get on your knees and ask Jesus to help you. Question number four. Should Christians partake of alcoholic beverages? Let's take a look at fighting the bottle, the battle of the bottle, as they say. There's a lot of confusion about the effects of alcohol on the body and the mind. Some people think that, you know, as long as I just partake just in moderation, it should be fine, as long as I don't get drunk. But is that true? You see that scientists can look into the eye at the tiny blood vessels visible there, and they can determine how many drinks of alcohol a person had consumed and, and also take, taken in by how sluggish and clumped together the blood cells are. So drinking alcohol cuts off oxygen supplies to the, to the brain. And we see that the brain cells are unable to get enough oxygen. And when they, don't, when they don't get enough oxygen, those brain cells are destroyed. And so the question I want to ask you tonight is this. How does God, through the Holy Spirit, communicate with you? Does he communicate with you through a tingling in your fingers? Does he communicate with you through the tingling of your toes? How does God, through the Holy Spirit, communicate with you? Through the mind. That's right. He communicates through our mind, through the brain, of course. And do you see why that the devil, he brewed alcohol in the laboratories of hell? Because he knows that alcohol destroys brain cells. The human brain is the only place where God can communicate with us through his Holy Spirit. That's why Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, says this in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. And we should take heed to the wisest man that ever lived. Amen? We're not wise, but we definitely want to hear what the wise man has to say. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says... Speaking of alcohol, speaking of wine, it says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Why is it that pilots are not allowed to drink 24 hours before they go on a flight? Hmm? Because they know what the effects of alcohol can do to those airline pilots. Why is it that medical students are told not to drink before going into their state board exams? Because it affects their judgment. Now, let me ask you this question. Let's be honest. Would you feel comfortable to have a life or death surgery done on you on a surgeon who had several drinks before that surgery? If that surgeon that's supposed to operate on you said, hey, I, I, I just had a couple drinks, but I'll be fine. I'll be performing your surgery today. Would you feel confident in having that surgeon operate on you? How many of you guys would be confident? Raise your hand. Nobody. I wouldn't either. But many who experiment with alcohol develop serious drinking problems that cause serious marital problems, problems with their work, and even criminal problems. And we look at 
Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? What a list. Woe, sorrow, strife, complaints, bruises, bloodshot eyes. The text continues with the answer. It says, those who linger over wine, who goes to sample bowls of mixed wine. So the Bible tells us that, is it, does it portray alcohol in a positive or negative light? A negative light. We see also Proverbs chapter 23, 29 through 33. It says, do not gaze at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. The Bible says, don't even look at wine when it is fermented. It's going to deceive you. We continue. It says, in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. So why would I want to put something in my body that poisons me? Like the bite of a venomous serpent. God says that the only way to deal with alcohol is to give it up completely. It says, your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. Someone will probably say, wait a minute, you forgot about the story of where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast. Does that story indicate that it's okay? to drink socially? Let's see what Jesus himself actually did. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone filled to the brim. Christ changed the water in the large pots to what? What did he change it to? To wine, right? But the question is, what kind of wine? Okay, there's two kinds of wine that the Bible speaks of, but it doesn't really differentiate the two unless you know the context. Because in the Bible, the same word wine can mean two things. It can mean fermented wine, or it can mean the pure juice of the grape, which is purely non-alcoholic. The only way that you can know which wine it's referring to is by the context of the Bible passage. Because you see very clearly in Isaiah 65 verse 8, it says, as the new wine, is that alcoholic or non-alcoholic? New wine. It's non-alcoholic, right? It's a new wine. It's found in the cluster. It's the juice of the grape. That's what the wine is, a new wine. And it says, one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So the new wine, that wine from the grape, the Bible says, that's good. A blessing is in that. That's good for you, right? But the wine that the Bible calls fresh or unfermented wine, the fermented wine is aged wine, which causes intoxication. The pure, fresh unfermented juice of the grape is invigorating. It's good for the health. But what kind of wine did Jesus create? Look at those measurements that we saw earlier. The wine he created at the wedding feast was how many water pots? Six water pots. And it says that one jar, John says it was enough to fill six stone jar water uh, jars to the brim. So the apostle describes the jars as each holding 20 to 30 gallons in one jar alone. 
So that's about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And this could make scores of people drunk. It was enough for everyone at the wedding feast to easily get drunk. And can you believe that Christ created fermented wine that intoxicates? Did Jesus create enough fermented wine to get the whole village drunk? I don't think so. The Bible indicates that the wine that Jesus made was the pure, fresh juice of the grape. The master of the feast didn't know that Jesus turned the water to wine. When he tasted the juice that Jesus had made, he called the bridegroom. And notice what scripture records in John chapter 2, verse 10. He said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did not create fermented, intoxicating, alcoholic wine for these people to drink. Not at all. The Bible says that he created good wine. And so, what is that good wine? A wine that is what? Unfermented. Our Lord created a wine that was so sweet, so magnificent that it gave them energy. That didn't destroy their brain cells. Jesus would never create anything that's going to cause people to lose control of their minds. Not for one second. Because that will make Jesus an accomplice to temptation. The Bible describes those who did those terrible, that those who did terrible things under the influence of alcohol. You know, some people make that argument. Well, in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the Bible characters drink alcohol and wine. Does that give us the right to drink it? I think those stories are there to teach us a lesson. Because Noah, he got drunk and he exposed himself shamefully. Lot got drunk and had sexual relations with his daughters. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons of the Levitical priesthood, under the influence of alcohol, desecrated the temple by making strange fire, and they were killed on the spot for that. King Herod, under the influence of alcohol, made the order to finally behead John the Baptist. It's the devil who is destroying people's spiritual lives through alcohol, friends. These stories in the Bible, yes, it shows that they have partaken of alcoholic wine, but it does not end well for them. That's the purpose why these stories are in the Bible. Not to give us a license to continue indulging in this intoxicating liquor, but to help us to realize how those things lead to a downfall of many people. God is calling us to keep our minds clear in preparation of the second coming of Christ. And also, here's another interesting fact. As we're talking about Revelation, in Revelation it talks about how Babylon, the mother of harlots, makes all the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. And they are all in this spiritually inebriated state because they're under this intoxicating influence by her wine. And what is that wine? That wine is false doctrines. The false doctrines in opposition to Christ's true teachings, which Christ's true, true teachings is characterized as that new wine without any taint of fermentation. It's pure. It's true. It's good. Whereas Babylon's wine, it's filled with intoxication and makes people inebriated 
under its influence. And so there's something we can learn from these Bible stories. One of the leading causes of death in automobile accidents is alcohol. No one gets in a car after drinking and thinks that they're going to be killed or, or even think of killing someone else. How could Jesus create or endorse something that would endanger people's lives, friends? Or cause people to sin? Or do things that they would normally not do when the restraints are all taken off due to alcohol? It just does not make sense. And we see that an estimated 88,000 people, that's approximately 62,000 men, 26,000 women, die a year from alcohol-related causes, making alcohol the third leading preventative cause of death in the United States. And you mean to tell me that Jesus made liquor with those statistics? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is going to endorse a substance that's going to cause people to die haphazardly. I, believe, I don't believe that Jesus accomplished a sin or vice that comes from alcohol. Nothing good comes from alcohol. And if you agree with me, say amen. amen. Despite all this, many try to make a case for drinking in moderation or socially. And when they think that way, they've been deceived by the evil one. It's better to abstain from it altogether as the Bible prescribes. There's only one way to be free. And that is to give these bodies of ours to Jesus and ask Him for the power to overcome. Question number five. If we take heed to the Bible's health principles, what does God promise? You know, God, He promises all throughout the Bible to give us abundant health. To give us what? Abundant health. That's what God wants for you, friends. And in the Old Testament, God made a wonderful promise to ancient Israel. And Moses said in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. God says, I don't want you to be plagued by the many diseases that come from alcohol, tobacco, drugs, sexual immorality, and a harmful diet. God says, I want to be the Lord who will heal you. The God who wants you to be in perfect, abundant health. And notice what was the description of the children of Israel when they came to Canaan. How long were they wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. After that 40 years of wandering, they finally made it to Canaan. And here's what the Bible describes about their physical well-being. In Psalms chapter 105, verse 37, it says, As they came into Canaan, it says that there was none feeble among his tribes. Not one person. Even the oldest person in that bunch of Israelites, they were not feeble. They were not crawling across the Canaan border and saying, I made it, and croaks and dies. No. They were feeble. They were strong. Why? Because they followed what God prescribed for them. And as a result, they reaped the benefits of an invigorating, healthful life. 
And we see that when the Israelites followed God's plan of health, they were free from the diseases that afflicted the Egyptians. Do you know, do you know what kind of diseases the Egyptians suffered from? It's very interesting. Studies were done on Egyptian mummies that confirmed the truthfulness of God's word. When medical researchers evaluated the health practices of the Egyptians, they came to some astounding conclusions on health and disease in the ancient world. One autopsy was performed on Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. The autopsy showed almost completely clogged arteries. He probably died of a massive heart attack. A British researcher by the name of Dr. Rosalie David in Manchester University, Manchester, England, performed multiple autopsies on Egyptian mummies. And this is what she found. She discovered that the Egyptians were dying of the same diseases, get this, as Western society today. Just by the autopsy alone, that's what they discovered. Dr. Claude Rufus did x-rays on 14,000 mummies, and he discovered that the Egyptians died of heart disease, cancer, arthritis, obesity, high blood pressure, rheumatism, STDs, and why? Because they were not following the Bible's plan of health. And we see that this, these same diseases are prevalent today, don't we? Question number five, does the Bible offer any help in choosing the best diet? What about the diet in scriptures? Does the Bible offer any help in choosing the best diet? You know, some people say, oh, you know, I want to go for the Atkins diet, or I want to go for the low-carb low diet, or all these other diet fads. What else is, is there? Is there any others? There, what? Mediterranean. Mediterranean diet. But what is the best diet that Scripture actually prescribes for us? We see the health principles that God gives when it comes to diet. We go to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. That shouldn't be too hard to find. It's in the very first page, at page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. What guidelines does the Bible give in regards to giving the optimal type of diet known to man? And we're going to have table 9. Read that for us, please. Okay, thank you. So when God created the human race, he gave them a magnificent diet of fruits, nuts, and grains, and vegetables. And so the Eden diet was a vegetarian diet. That's what God intended for us to have from the very beginning. God did not give Adam and Eve flesh in the Garden of Eden. Adam didn't kill animals in Eden for lunch. It was God's desire that Adam and Eve live long and abundant lives on the original diet given in Genesis. And some people have asked, 
If you want the best diet, what is it? And science reveals that it's a vegetarian diet. You know, personally, I am a vegan. And I haven't been vegan for very long. I used to be vegetarian before, uh, but I used to be a huge, avid meat eater. Uh, since I'm Korean, I don't know if you guys know about Korean barbecue, I was always at the restaurant, all you could eat all the time. You know, just getting as much as I could. I was a college student back then, I was just like eating as much as I can. I was just like frequenting those all you could eat barbecue places, and man, I thought that that was the best thing. But as I got older, I started to realize, you know, I, start, I, need to start, I don't feel good. I got to start taking care of myself. And over time, it didn't happen overnight, but gradually, I finally made it to become vegan. And I've been a vegan for six years now. But I want to tell you that there's a big difference from when, before I was a vegan till now. Uh, before I had like all these other health problems and other things, uh, uh, skin problems and stuff like that. But when I actually ate a vegan diet, it changed my life completely. I don't have those problems anymore. And I can testify to that. That is true. A vegan diet does bring optimal health results to your overall well-being. And I feel better now. I could get up better. I don't get tired. I don't get headaches. And it's all due to the very fact that God has given us the best optimal diet to begin with. And we got to go back to Eden. we got to go back to what God has prescribed for us. And there's, there's benefits to that, health benefits to that. And so we see that I, I'm not saying that everyone should be vegan, <laughs> uh, but I'm saying that I, for me personally, I want to follow God's best plan. And for me, that's what I feel that God is telling me to do. Then that's what, what I've been doing and have been blessed by it. And I know that you will too. Um, you know, it's not easy to make those changes. Uh, for me, it took gradual degrees of these changes to come about. But with God, and I give glory to God because it was through God um, and my faithful wife. Because <laughs> sometimes when I went to Subway, you know, uh, we were trying to, I was trying to cut out cheese for the longest time. And then like I would just, when my wife wasn't looking, I'd be like, put some cheese in there. And then she would like say, did you get cheese in your sandwich? I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and so she would like, you know, like hold me accountable. So, you know, thanks to her, we, we are being faithful vegans now. I don't even need the cheese. Now they have vegan cheese. So that's even better. So uh, replace what's bad with good, right? Yeah. So uh, we see that in the story of the flood, um, it wasn't until after the flood in Noah's day that God gave people permission to eat flesh food. Why? Because after the flood and the ark was resting on Mount Ararat and they opened the ark and all the animals came out and Noah and his family came out. When they came out to that world, now it was all wiped out of any kind of vegetation because of the flood. And God, knowing that, allowed them, permitted them to eat flesh food which was not the original diet that Adam and Eve had. So we read in the Bible that after this flesh food was introduced, and I wish I had that graph up there, but you'll notice that up to the flood, the longevity of all mankind was about 900 years to close to 1,000 years. They lived long uh, spans of time back then. But once this flesh food diet was introduced after the flood, you'll notice that their lifespans dropped dramatically to like 70, sometimes if you're lucky, to 100. 
all due to the fact that flesh foods were introduced. And we saw that, uh, you know, just, just in one generation, the lifespan just plummeted due to the introduction of meat diet. And so question number six, as we're getting into this whole meat issue, you know, there's this issue about clean and unclean. And I hear this a lot, so I put this question in there. Isn't the distinction between clean and unclean animals only for the Jews? Right? And some people say, you know, it's as if, it's as if the Jewish people have a different digestive system than us. Or they differ from the rest of humanity. Or it's under the law of Moses. Or, or it's not applicable to us. But I don't believe that, friends. Because we see that the clean and unclean distinction of these animals actually was in the book of Genesis, way before Moses was ever around, way before a Jew was in the picture. We see that this distinction was very clear of clean and unclean animals in Genesis. Noah was instructed by God to bring both clean and unclean animals into the ark. And let's take a look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, so that you don't take my word for it, but you'll see it from the Bible. Table number 10, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. And I don't have the page number, if someone can call that out. Okay, so how many animals went into the ark of each kind? Okay, so, you know, sometimes you see the pictures where it shows, like, there's all the animals came in two by two. That's wrong. According to the Bible, the animals that were unclean came in by twos. The animals that were clean came in by sevens, right? And that's very important to realize. Why is that? You see that there, God said that there's two kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them a vegetarian diet. At the time of the flood, God allowed the eating of meat, but he made a distinction between clean and unclean. The unclean were never to be eaten. That's why they came in by twos. The, the clean ones came in by sevens because that would be their food source for a time after the flood. And so the vegetarian uh, diet was not possible because all the vegetation was destroyed. God instructed Noah and his family to take the clean animals into the ark by sevens so that they can have a food source after the flood. And so we see that it was only after the flood that God gave human beings permission to eat meat. And meat eaters seeking to move to a healthier lifestyle will begin to follow the biblical model of eating only clean meats. And what are clean meats? Well, the Bible gives us very clear, specific instructions to help us know which animals are clean and unclean. And we see that there's two major portions uh, of, uh, um, in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14. These two chapters are devoted to this instruction. It outlines it very clearly. And so write that down and study that out. And uh, let's take a look 
at a few of these for the time being. Which were the clean animals? What mammals did God permit humans to eat? Okay, and we see in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 6 through 8, it says, And you may eat of every animal with cloven hoofs, having the hoof split in two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. So notice, the Bible says of the mammals or the animals that we can eat, of the mammals that are deemed clean are those who have these two characteristics. They have a split hoof like a cow, right? And it also chews its cud, right? What does chewing the cud mean? It means that when the animal chews its food, it swallows it and spits it up and choose it again so the poisons and the toxins are not absorbed in the flesh as easily. And so some examples of clean animals are cow, the sheep, the goat, and the deer. These animals fit God's description as clean animals. These animals have cloven hoofs and choose the cud, right? What animals are unclean? What animals should we avoid according to the Bible? Moses continues in Deuteronomy 14, 6 through 8. He says, Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat as these. Right? So in other words, it's saying if they have only one of the two characteristics, you should not eat them. They have to have both. They have to have cloven hooves and chew the cud. But if they only have one or the other, you don't eat them. Right? So here's some examples. The camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. And so the camel, I know you guys are really dying right now because you're like, oh man, I can't have camel anymore. <laughs> the Bible says do not eat the camel, though it chews its cud, it doesn't have a split hoof. Also, the hare, that's a rabbit, and the rock hyrax, they chew the cub, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean to you. Right? So the Bible outlines this very clearly. Let's go on. It also says, also the swine, also known as the pig, is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud. And it says, you shall not eat their flesh nor touch their dead carcasses. Right? So the pig has cloven hooves, but it does not chew the cud. And you know what? The pigs, nobody would want to eat this, would they? The Bible forbids it. It's a scavenger. Its flesh is unclean for food. And some people say, but when Jesus died on the cross, it's all okay now. Did Jesus die on the cross to cleanse pigs? Certainly not. Jesus came to cleanse sinners. If a pig was unhealthy before the cross, it must be unhealthy after the cross. And here's a verse you should remember. Psalms 84, verse 11. It says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Would Jesus, in his love for us, hold, us, hold back anything good from us? Just even one thing. Will he take one good thing away from us? 
This verse tells us that he will not hold any good thing from us, right? So Jesus said that he will give us every good thing if we only trust him and lovingly obey him. Every good thing is ours. But, if we, but we must follow the Bible rather than what people tell us. And I could even go further to say we, could, we should follow the Bible over our own appetites. Because the Bible says that there is a group of people who make their God their belly. Oof. Right? We cannot allow our appetite to rule us. And pork has the highest cholesterol source of all meats. Not only that, research has shown that eating pork products, which are loaded with artery-clogging cholesterol and saturated fat, is a good way to increase your chances of developing deadly diseases as heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's, asthma, and impotence. Now, if pork was good, God would not hold it back from us, but since it's not good, he says, don't eat it. Why? Well, look at what science has found about pork. Dr. McNaught, a health researcher, found that every por four pork specimens, that one in every four pork specimens had living trachina larvae in it. Parasites. If you put an infective piece of pork under a microscope, you'll see the trachina larvae, which ha may have millions of little eggs. And these eggs hatch in your digestive tract, and they invade your muscle tissue, causing serious symptoms like arthritis or rheumatism. And trichina are parasite worms. Trichinosis is breaking out again. And we see that somebody says, oh, but if we cook them so it's so hot, we'll kill them all. But does it give more comfort to know that we're eating dead trichina larvae than live ones? You know, many cases of trichinosis that break out affect people who thought they cooked their pork sufficiently. I'd rather follow God, friends. How about you? And I know you would too. We can learn to control our appetites. We can eat to live rather than live to eat. And we see, oh, this is the text I was talking about. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. The New Testament speaks of those who would destroy themselves do, through doing things their own way rather than following Jesus the only way. In Philippians 3.19 it says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their what? Their belly is their God, and whose glory is in what? Their shame. Notice that. <laughs> their glory is in their shame. Their glory is not to glorify God, right? Just like what the first angel says, fear God and give glory to him. We're not glorifying God when we do this. We are glorifying our shame. And who set their mind on earthly things. Many Christians don't realize the issue, the real issue. They love Jesus, but they haven't seen that by an attitude that says, I don't care what you say. God, I'm going to do whatever I want. They're really in rebellion and in very real danger. Our God is the God of the universe, and he invites us to give him our bodies as a living sacrifice. He wants us to start living now like we would as we would in heaven. He who knew, 
Um, he who knew all things, Jesus, spoke so clearly on health. Question number eight. How about fish? Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 14, again, the same chapter, verse 9 and 10, outlines what kind of fish is permitted to eat. And notice the characteristics. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. Right, so what do they need to have? Both fins and scales to be deemed clean, right? And so we see, and whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So if a fish has fins and scales, the Bible says, you can eat it. It's clean. But if it's in the water and does not have fins and scales, such as crab, lobster, clam, anything that's a scavenger, uh, catfish, catfish has fins but they do not have scales, so they're deemed unclean, they're bottom feeders. You see, friends, the reason why God dictates what's clean and unclean is, is not to restrict what we can eat. Because I hear, I haven't eaten shrimp and stuff like that, but people say, oh, it's so good, I can't give it up. You know, I, and, but the, the thing is, the reason why that God tells us to not eat certain animals is because he has designated certain animals to be nature's garbage collectors. They eat the filth of the ocean or the filth of the, of the land around us. They, they eat the feces of other animals and they, they, they are nature's garbage collectors. And God deemed them for that function. And God rightfully says, do not eat them because you're going to eat what they're eating secondhand and you're going to suffer for it. It's the same thing as if I want, I do not want any of my children to be eating in a dumpster. I'll be saying, why are you doing that? I have good food for you. Get out of there. Why would we eat something that is designated as nature's garbage collectors? Or sewage system cleaners. It's very, very nasty. And that's why God rightfully tells us not to eat those things. That's why he deems them unclean. Right? And by the way, pig, did you know that pig, they, uh, they don't sweat. They don't have sweat glands. So all the toxins get embedded in their flesh. That's why they are ridden with toxins and parasites because of the way, the lifestyle of that animal, right? And God says, stay away from those things. Now, some people will bring this up. They say, what about Peter's vision? You know, some people say, oh, because Peter had a vision and all the sheep came up, came down from heaven with all these unclean animals in it. And you guys remember that story? In that vision, he saw rats, snakes, alligators, pigs, and a whole array of unclean things, creepy crawlies all over on that sheet. And the sheet descends from heaven, filled with these unclean animals. Peter was given some startling instructions. The voice in heaven said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was confused. He said, Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And this happened three times. 
And Peter was very confused by this vision. He was thinking, did God mean that we should eat rats, pigs, crabs, and alligators? And we see, you know, some preachers will try to say that this vision means that you could eat anything you want. That's certainly not how Peter understood it. In fact, he didn't eat. In fact, he refused to eat. But it was only when God explained the true meaning of the vision that Peter said, Ah, now I know what God was trying to teach me. Notice, God was telling Peter the true meaning of the vision was Peter was a Jewish Christian. He should not consider the Gentiles to be unclean, but they too will be reached with the gospel. Peter explains the meaning of the vision to the rest of the disciples in this way. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Let's turn there. I believe we're at table number 11. Is that right? Table number 11, Acts chapter 10, verse 28. How did Peter understand this vision? The meaning, the true meaning of the vision. Was it to say that everything is now on the menu because everything is cleansed? Or is it something else? Acts chapter 10, verse 28. See, friends, we need to make sure that the Bible answers itself. Some people jump to the conclusion to say that, ah, now unclean meats are clean, so we can eat whatever we want. That's not what it's saying. If you read the whole context, which is what we're going to do right now, you'll tell us exactly how Peter understood this vision to mean. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. <laughs> so, look at this text here. Does Peter say, God has shown me that I should not call any pig common or unclean? Is that what he said? he said? Did he say, God has shown me that I should not call any animal common or unclean? Is that what he said? What did Peter understand this vision to mean? He said, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. See, Peter was a little prejudiced. He was a little, I guess you could say, racist. Because he thought that the gospel should only go to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Forget about them. They're unclean. They're lost. There's no chance for them. And God had to correct that understanding in Peter's mind. And he did it with something that Peter was familiar with. Food. And he told him, don't call what I have cleansed common or unclean. And Peter understood it to mean not animals, but meaning the Gentiles. They too are to be partakers of the, the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul understood this. And he says later on, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. This vision was not to explain that we should eat pigs, snakes, and rats. Not at all. It's a vision about racial harmony. It was a vision that God has made one blood of all nations. It was a vision against prejudice between people of different backgrounds. And man can say this is a vision of eating unclean animals, but God used unclean animals as an illustration to Peter that, that Peter should accept all people through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be saying, but I'm struggling with alcohol, with tobacco, with unclean foods or drugs, and I hear calling, what can I do? 
And Jesus says, I will give you the power and the strength to live an abundant, victorious life. Question number 10. What vital principle can we use in giving up habits that destroy us? Here's a vital principle that I want us to look at tonight. John chapter 15, verse 5. John chapter 15, verse 5. Maybe some of us are under a habit that we cannot overcome. And we see that in John chapter 15, verse 5, a vital principle of what hope we have in overcoming those habits. John chapter 15, verse 5. And I believe we're on table number 12. Ah, so without Christ, we can do nothing. First, without Christ, you can't quit smoking. Without Christ, you cannot give up alcohol. Without Christ, you cannot give up unclean foods. Without Christ, you cannot overcome the lust that rages in your soul and destroys relationships with people you love. We see this vital principle. The first principle is, without Christ, we can do nothing. The second principle that follows that is that with Christ, all things are possible. So notice that there's no middle ground. Without Christ, nothing is possible. But we see that with Christ, all things are possible. Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do how many things? All things through Christ who strengthens me. He doesn't say I can do all things through Christ except quit smoking. He doesn't say, I can do all things through Christ except give up drugs or alcohol or unclean foods. No, he says, without Christ, we can do nothing. And Jesus says to you right now, come to me. Put your tobacco on the altar. Put your alcohol on the altar. If you are in some destructive relationship, put your life on the altar. If you're abusing your body with drugs, put that on the altar. If you're overeating and you can't control your appetite, put that on the altar too. Lovingly, Jesus reminds you, I have worked many miracles. I delivered delivered people who are blind and crippled. And when you surrender all, I'll work miracles in your life too. God is gathering a group of people that he will preserve as a testimony to the world that his way of life is best. How many of you tonight would like to say, Lord, I want to give you my life, my body. I want to surrender it all to you right now. Is that your desire tonight? If so, would you raise your hand and make that decision tonight and say, Lord, I want to lay it all on the altar. I want to be a living sacrifice for you. Praise the Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this study in your word that outlines how we can glorify you in what we eat, what we drink, and what we do. Lord, we know that Jesus has everything possible that he can do in us if we will allow him into our lives. And Lord, we have raised our hands 
testifying to the fact that we do need you and we do want you and we want this change to be evident in our own lives. So Lord, I pray that you please bless each and every person here that raised their hand and I pray that you'll please work in their lives so that they may abound more and more in victory and abundant living. Lord, help us to abound not just in our physical well-being but also in our spiritual well-being as well. We know that only you can make that possible and we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. I want to invite you to come up tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, our topic is Revelations Four Horsemen, and that's going to be at 7 o'clock. But don't forget, at 6.30 is our baptismal class. Anyone's welcome to join that class. And so feel free to sit in with us for that as well. And uh, may God bless you. We'll see you again tomorrow at 7 o'clock.